This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Season 6, Episode 16, Labyrinth of the Wind. Today's episode is part of our continuing Meet the Author series. Our guest is Madhav Misra, the author of the critically acclaimed novel, Labyrinth of the Wind. In his debut work, Madhav takes us back in time to the late 1970s in Iran. The Shah rules the country with an iron fist, like the autocrat that he was. But the Shah also had very ambitious goals to modernize Iran, which had a population of about 30 million at the time, including the emancipation of women, as well as the White Revolution. But the Shah was also very interested in becoming a nuclear power. By contrast, Iran today has a population of 84 million people, almost three times what it was in 1978. Iran is also a very young country. Today, the median age of the Iranian population is 30 versus the median age of the U.S. population of 38. So it's a very young country. It's also a big country. Iran is comprised of 640,000 square miles, which makes it about the same size as our state of Alaska. Obviously, a little warmer and a little drier than Alaska, but nonetheless, about the same size. So with that, let me introduce my guest, Madhav Mizra, to talk about his new book. Hello, Madhav. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. The um, well, Madhav, could you give us a sense of uh, a sense of your biography? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And uh, uh, you're coming through nice and loud and clear. Uh, well, Jim, I was born in in Lucknow, which coincidentally was the place where uh, Khomeini's grandfather was the Shia Mullah there. So we have something in common with the Ayatollah Khomeini. And in fact, uh, it may be interesting for your listeners to know that the Ayatollah used to write Sufi poetry, uh, and he would end his poems with, with signing off as Al Hind. In the forces, how the Persians referred to India, uh-huh. and uh, so that's kind of interesting um, perspective. Well, we moved; our family moved to New Delhi when I was still very young, and I went through the Irish Christian Brothers schooling system, and was educated then at St. Stephen's College, Delhi University, and then later on at Columbia University in New York. And in between, I picked up a professional qualification in finance. Uh, in London. So that's kind of my educational background. Well, with all of that rich background and international background, how did you end up in Iran in the eye of the storm just as the Islamic Revolution was getting underway? Well, Jim, if you recall, in the mid-70s, it was was a time of a pretty bad recession in Western Europe and the United States. And uh, when I finished my exams in London, my personnel officer 
sent me a note saying there's good news and bad news. Good news is you're one of our few trainees, interns that we're going to keep. The bad news is uh, we're going to send you to Tehran uh, because uh, the Americans, uh, our American colleagues are putting a lot of pressure on us and there's a lot of reporting that has to be done out of Tehran to U.S. standards and you're roughly from that part of the world, they thought. So <laughs> off I was sent uh, to Tehran because they thought I would adapt faster than uh, an Englishman would. And uh, little did they know the cultural shock I got when I arrived there because obviously being educated in Anglo-Saxon educational system, uh, it was a completely different culture and certainly a culture that used uh, French as a second language, not English. So, but anyway, uh, there I was in Tehran, and, uh, uh, you know, I went there ostensibly for a short assignment to help out, but before I knew it, through a variety of events, coincidences, chance, I ended up being the chief financial officer of a major energy company, and I had then 40 Iranians working for me, uh, so it was, you know, within six months of leaving London, I was pretty well established in Tehran. What an exciting debut to your career in finance. And as a young man, having all of this responsibility, I mean, you truly must have been the, the big fish in the small pond. That's true, Jim. You know, and as you've lived the expatriate life, and of course, uh, at that time, the Shah was trying to grow exponentially, and he had unlimited resources, but he was short of professional staff. So those of us who happened to be in Tehran, uh, expatriates from all over the world, actually, were in um, high demand. And we, I think we got jobs, I can say fairly, that we got jobs well above the level we would get in the West, uh, which was a great opportunity. Uh, so, that, so it was... Uh, I remember a conversation I had with an Iranian, and I told him, he asked me, you know, what's your plan? I said, well, you know, I've got admission into the London Business School where, you know, I had a full, full uh, scholarship into the MBA program. And he said, are you crazy? You're going back to Europe when we are booming over here? You, you have to stay in Tehran. We need people like you. And he was quite persuasive. Uh, so anyway, he was one one of the people who made sure that I had plenty of interviews uh, and phone calls. And within a week, I had a job offer. Oh. a pretty big job offer that I accepted. Mm -hmm. And now the idea for your book, when you were actually there working in Iran, did the, did the writing bug get you at that point? Or was that something that, uh, that came later? Well, yeah, I always wanted to write, Jim, uh, I felt I, there were stories I wanted to tell. Uh, early on, there were stories of the oral tradition uh, of our family, a large family that had parts of which had grown up in uh, what is now Pakistan, but moved to India after the partition. And uh, people who had participated in on the Eastern Front, uh, helping supply Chiang Kai-shek uh, and be part of the railways. And a lot of these folks were aging and uh, I was worried that I, you know, I wanted to capture their stories before it was too late. And uh, then uh, as I was in Tehran and enjoying this amazing lifestyle, which quite frankly, 
there were only a few cities in the world that had the Tehran lifestyle. It used to be Beirut uh, and uh, Havana, Cuba, Hong Kong, Rio de Janeiro, the great watering holes of the world. I was enjoying that lifestyle, and then all of a sudden I was looking for an evacuation flight out of Tehran with gunfire in the distance. My so word. That was quite an quite, uh, extraordinary experience that I also want to write about. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I became friends with people from all over the world, uh, in London, in Tehran, later on when I came to New York City, and I, I met a lot of people, and I felt that there was a community that I wanted to write about, a global English-speaking nation-state of the mind. Uh, that actually came of age in the early 70s, where people who were not American or Western European got a chance to live, you know, I know it's a cliche, but live their dreams, reach for success, reach for happiness, whatever you want to call it. And uh, driven by an idea of not their colonial masters of the past, be it the French in Africa or the Italians or the Spanish in South America or the British in our case, but of America. And the America of Dylan and Janis Joplin of uh, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King of idealism, uh, and of the America that had echoed around the world uh, through the Vietnam War protests. So I thought, you know, I wanted to write about all these things, and I got a chance then, Jim, as uh, we were all busy, you and I, everybody, with our business careers, and in 2007, I got a chance to sit down and write because I sold an equity stake in a business and with that came a non-compete where I was really not allowed to do anything. So I started writing uh, all of these as non-fiction stories. Uh, and eventually they coalesced into, into a novel. And who was your who was your inspiration? Because I know that you you did some creative writing classes at Stanford. Talk to me about the process. Who was your uh, who who was your one or your many muses and uh, inspirations in in moving in the direction of the novel versus the more factual business type of history? Well, you know, I must say that, that I took multiple works I attended multiple writing workshops at Stanford and uh, after about the third one where I presented various non-fiction stories short stories all based on some of the ideas I've just mentioned uh, Lynn Stegner and Nancy Packer and a variety of other instructors they're actually world-class authors in their own right indeed is Lynn uh, Stegner the daughter of Wallace Stegner uh, she's the daughter-in-law of Wallace Stegner. I see, uh, and, and 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 a famous writer in a, in a, you know in, in her own right. And uh, Nancy Packer, of course, uh, uh, one of the legendary uh, professors of writing in English at Stanford, who was actually one of the early hires of Wallace Stegner when he created the Writer Studio at Stanford. So um, they really encouraged me to start, plus a whole variety of others. I don't want to start thinking of a novel from the point of view of this protagonist. Mm-hmm. They liked the voice. They wanted it. They, they pushed me in the direction of a single point of view. And, uh, and they, the sense was, if you write it as a novel, it could take flight. And it could really be unconstrained 
and some of the non-fiction stories were limited by you know what people would think how people would react and the first novel format was one where you could really let everything fly mm-hmm. and uh, so that's how it became a novel and well, then interestingly jim i was uh, thinking about you know i thought the propulsive force uh, and of course the people of Stanford agree with this should be the Iranian revolution and that that one year during the revolution when everything changed mm-hmm. uh, and, and but the main motivation of the protagonist after had to be love and I said otherwise why would why would he take all these chances what would be it would be too dry and boring to write about otherwise even for me and as a, as a result of a chance meeting with Deepak Chopra yes. at a Corporate event at Palo Alto, uh, you know, it moved in the direction of a love story because it was funny. At the end of the event, the host introduced me to Deepak and said, "Here's a guy who's started writing a novel." And Deepak, said, you know, just asked me, "What are you writing about?" And as soon as I mentioned that it was a love story in the time of revolution, he had, his attention became focused on me, and he wanted to know more about the love story, and ended up by saying, "You know." Every good story is a love story. And I thought to myself, well, that's a good endorsement. It was one of the things that encouraged me to to use both the revolution, Iranian revolution, as well as this love story. It's uh, one of the two drivers of the narrative. What a wonderful endorsement by Deepak Chopra. Now, of course, I've read the novel. My wife just finished reading it yesterday, and our daughter is next in the queue. So my one copy of the novel is now onto its uh, its third reader. There, you you referred to it as a love story, and that's certainly uh, a major element of the of the book. But there are several other important themes, such as the expatriate life, which you've referred to earlier. There's 1970s global terrorism, which I'm sure you'll come on to when we talk about Gabby, uh, Ayan's love interest, as well as the collapse of the Pahlavi dynasty, the Iranian dynasty, and the flight of the Shah. And then finally, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, not only in Iran, but also throughout the Middle East. And then, of course, so there there are other major themes that are interwoven with this great love story. And then, of course, the principal characters, Ayan, Gabby. Why don't we just take a moment and tell me a little bit about Ayan and Gabby, their relationship, and how that becomes the anchor of the story. All right. Well, you know, Ayan, uh, I wanted to write as a, from a place, Jim, from a tradition. And I wanted to write from the place uh, and a tradition of flawed characters in half-made places. Uh, the tradition of Naipaul, Graham Greene, Joseph Conrad. I just love their stories. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write from that tradition. So, uh, you know, and so I am, and it was something that I knew. I was familiar with that milieu. And I think you should also write from not just one place in a tradition, but from something you know. And so Ayan is this flawed character who, who basically doesn't think, doesn't know he's flawed. <laughs> he really believes that he's living the international life of, uh, you know, living the imagined life. Let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. And his life, and he wanted the freedom to travel, to experiment, and he was not really sure 
what he wanted to be, but he didn't. He was sure that he didn't want to be boxed in too soon by the conservative uh, mindset of uh, the people around him in India, who were influenced by the partition, the Second World War, the Great Depression that really hit India. Uh, but he he really wanted to be part of this this cohort that had no barriers, no limits. And he imagined he was doing something in his own mind, somewhat heroic. And uh, Gabby then, and then what's one part of the novel really is where people sort of look at him and see him in a different light, quite frankly. But that was his self-image. Yes. And uh, he runs into Gabby and he, he meets her and falls and they fall in love. But she is really very much uh, a 1970s person, an idealist, and she's really supporting the Bader-Meinhof movement. Which and the novel actually starts the week after the Bader-Meinhof brought Germany to its knees through Mogadishu, and and um, the Ayatollah Khomeini's son was murdered in Najaf, Iraq, by the secret police, the Shah's secret police, starting the Iranian revolution. And so revolution was also very much in the air, and Ayan had also, during his undergraduate time, been recruited by the the guerrillas in India, the the Maoist guerrilla movement in India, which is still very strong today, the Naxalites. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea of revolution was very much part of the 70s mindset together with all the social uh, freedoms etc and i wanted to capture that essence of the 70s also that gabby was really his conscience and and she she reflect she was like a mirror reflecting back at him mm-hmm. and there's one more person in that no- in the novel the mother figure who who makes a visit who reminds ayan what he wants, how he wants to live is not really that heroic, mm-hmm. but it is quite selfish. Mm-hmm. And uh, he doesn't believe any of this. Actually, he, he takes, he, he wants to keep going the route he wants to go. But that, that's how, you know, these two characters, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of attraction between the two of them, Gabby and Ayan, but there's a fundamental problem where she wants, she's on a different path, yes. the path of helping the underdog, Mm-hmm. And he's on the path of self-realization and focused on himself. And his career, of course. Now, let's move on and talk about the uh, talk about the driver, Hamid, and how important the driver is to opening Ayan to the fundamentalist Iranian revolution. And, and also, if you could talk about how in expat life, a driver is much more than a driver and kind of a window on the local culture. Yeah, Jim, as, as you are aware, there's often long commutes and uh, the language barriers, cultural barriers. And so the driver is usually the, the friend philosopher guide for uh, an expatriate, especially in the early days. And Hamid is very much based on my driver. I had a one-hour commute each way. And he was a great supporter of the Ayatollah Khomeini. He was the one actually who told me about the Ayatollah Khomeini and his tapes coming in from uh, Najaf, Iraq. And uh, he was the warm, generous person. And I modeled Hamid around him as 
the face of the revolution. There are two faces. I present two faces of the revolution. Uh, Hamid is sort of the idealistic face, and then his friend Hidayat is the sword that kills. Mm-hmm. So, because you you know each revolution needs both the idealism as well as that the the, the, the killing force, mm-hmm. the enforcer. And so uh, Hamid was uh, through his through these drives, he brings makes forces Ayan to think about what's below the surface and the superficial life he's enjoying in Iran, and uh, through a variety of interactions with Hamid and his very warm, affectionate, uh, and generous family, even though they have absolutely nothing, they're desperately poor, they're very generous uh, people. Ayan feels very connected to them and protective towards them. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the forces in the novel that pulls Ayan closer into the Iranian revolution. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Ayan's boss, Nader Ovesi, as well as the Savak investigator or uh, overseer in the company, Hosseini. Talk about both of them. And if you would, tell our listeners about Savak and how all-pervasive the Iranian secret police Savak was, even at a corporate level. So I started Savak first, a very powerful force in Iran. Uh, they were basically the Shah's secret police, and the entire population of Iran was desperately scared of them for good reason, because they had these, uh, you know, they, these places where they would torture, they would kill, they were under no, no one controlled them. And initially, Savak was trained by the CIA, and then uh, they would take um, the Mossad took over. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, the CIA was was uh, began to focus more on the communist threat in Russia, and monitor that from Iran, whereas the Savak completely fenced in domestic uh, the domestic situation and kept the CIA out of that. Uh, well, that's one of the reasons, by the way, Jim, that the American intelligence community, till very late in '78, thought the Shah was going to survive. But the Savak was everywhere, including in the company I worked in. And uh, you had uh, two faces to Savak. You had the the enforcers again, Jim, mm-hmm. and then you had the people who were the spies or who 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 kept tabs on everybody, whether it was senior executives, whether it was people at at parties, uh, socialists, relatives of the Shah. They kept tabs on everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you you know there was no secrets from them. And so I have this character, Hedar Hosseini, who is a poetry-loving person. I want to create a rounded character and also bring in an aspect of Persian culture, which I was grew very fond of, which was their love of their poets and how poetry is integrated into the everyday life of most, most Persians. So uh, you have this Hedar Hosseini who is a, loves these poetry contests with Ayan. He's also... A lover of the of women and the high life. Mm-hmm. He loves. He's very partial to Gabby, uh-huh. and uh, so he has. So, but he's all the time watching Ayan, uh, and separately, Nader Ovesi. I wanted. To, I have a line in the book which says, "He's of the type that seems to have sailed through life without really any obstacles. Mm-hmm. A naturally successful." 
person who's the typical CEO, whether it's in Iran or the United States or anywhere in the world, who who's to the manner born, to to the corner office born, natural leader, but amazingly charismatic, but also very savvy. And he is uh, the one who plays Ayan, uh, you know, and 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 dangles uh, all sorts of uh, riches in front of Ayan, but he has an ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. And I won't tell you more about that, but <laughs> immensely charismatic figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I would, and I, this is also a good point to bring out, Jim, the uh, the culture of Iran, where you had people who were CEOs of companies who were, you know, Baha'i, of the Baha'i faith, Zoroastrian faith, mm-hmm. uh, Jewish faith. Uh, so it was very interesting to see that the, they had, uh, at the, in the corner office, you had, uh, you didn't have to be a Shia Muslim. Uh, so it was a very sort of uh, tolerant culture. And I know that was one of the things that intrigued you also was how different it is from today. Yes. But, uh, uh, I wanted to present uh, Nader as somebody who was a, a sort of a internationally sophisticated CEO. Mm-hmm. Now, Madhav, one we and, and another key theme in the uh, in the book, and it's a theme which is still current in Iran, is the nuclear ambitions of Iran, and they actually began during the Shah's regime, right? And continue up to this day and continue to be a major source of friction between the United States and Iran. Of course, under the Trump administration, they tore up the uh, peace agree or the uh, anti-nuclear agreement with Iran. And now the Biden administration is looking to perhaps reinstate that. Could you talk to us about the history of, uh, of the, the Shah and the nukes? Because that is a theme here in the book, and we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about the two characters who are involved in that also. Sure. Uh, so that's really uh, one thing I wanted to bring in this book. Uh, you know, I wasn't totally uh, aware of how far the Shah's nuclear program had gone till I read the declassified documents, uh, but you know, in it. Indira Gandhi in India in 1974 uh, tested a nuclear bomb because earlier she was uh, she was harassed by Nixon and Kissinger, who were dead set on the bridge to China through Pakistan mm-hmm. and wanted to stop the separation of Pakistan into Bangladesh and, and what's today Pakistan that Indira Gandhi was promoting and sent the Seventh Fleet into the Bay of Bengal with orders to stop her. And she had signed, somebody had signed a treaty with the Russians that automatically triggered help in case of a nuclear threat. And a nuclear submarine came from Vladivostok and started tailing the, the seventh fleet. Really? Which immediately, which immediately left the Bay of Bengal. Mm-hmm. And that lesson stayed with Indira Gandhi. And so she was determined and then through covert means developed, uh, tested India's first nuclear rep- bomb. Uh, and uh, that sort of influenced the Shah, affected the Shah because, you know, he wanted to be the king of kings. Yes. And he, he thought, you know, India is a much poorer country than me, than, than my country. I have all these resources. 
I want to be the great emperor. I must have a nuclear capability too. But his, his, his plan was cloaked as uh, using nuclear energy and saving oil. Oil was black gold that he wanted to save for the future of the nation. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to use nuclear energy and for, for domestic purposes. And he had 25,000 megawatt plan. And uh, so there were a lot of nuclear uh, projects uh, approved by the Shah. And he was also, at the same time, he created this Atomic Energy Organization of Iran that had the highest paid people, professionals in Iran. And that uh, employees were being sent to MIT, to the top schools all over the world to train. Uh, and, the, and the Shah also had a deal with South Africa to get uranium. He was close to South Africa anyway. Yes, because and, he'd, uh, he'd lived in South Africa during World War II, right? Right. So, so I think that that's uh, so. The, so then, um, uh, the the whole idea was that you know you have this uranium yellow cake that is coming from South Africa that could be going towards the nuclear energy program, mm -hmm. or may not all be going in that direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, the U.S. administration at that time was very concerned about this program. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, that's a good website that gives a timeline of the Iranian nuclear capability. Uh, the time that I write about, it was front and center of the intelligence worries about Iran in Washington. And uh, the thesis or the situation in the novel is well, just as Indira Gandhi was, had succeeded in, in moving some of the material and, and testing this nuclear capability for military purposes, the Shah was doing the same too in Iran. And I create that as uh, part, of the, uh, part of the narrative drive of the novel too. Now let's talk, so, about, let's talk about one of your fascinating characters, the South African um, Chip de Groot who is the uh, kind of a, a rival, if you will, of Ion. And he's also the instrument who actually facilitates the movement of yellow cake from South Africa to Iran. And wittingly or unwittingly, uh, Ion is then recruited into financing this movement. Give us a sense of, the, of who Chip de Groot was and um, who you look to, who you who you drew upon to create that character. So Jim, uh, Chip de Groot, I, I had interacted with a lot of South Africans and Australians when I was a student in England and mostly interacted them, became friends with them on the tennis court, squash court, or socializing with them, uh, drinking with them, etc. And so I had a good sense of the South Af African culture and personality. And at the same time as, I, I my career progressed, and I, I had a lot. I had a lot of business activities around the world, uh, in a variety of areas. I ran into characters like him, and so uh, I modeled him around. You know, as I, I think Jim, you'll agree that most characters are a mix of experience, uh, observation, imagination, etc. And 
I sort of modeled him around some people that I had run into. Uh, but he, his whole role was uh, to, you know, he, and I also modeled him around, by the way, interestingly, uh, the senior M&A bankers of top, top uh, firms on Wall Street who are these boutique firms that provide just elite service to top CEOs yes. on a very confidential basis, which I had some quite a lot of experience in in that area. So their goal is to really get deals done yes. at high levels, have access, you know, and use connections to get deals done quietly, and to use people like Ayan, you know, to you know, uh, to get the work done, but not. They're not used to having people like Ayan question them. Now, coming so the back to sorry. so Go coming ahead. as we as we come to uh, as we draw to a close here, let's talk about we couldn't finish the program without talking about a private banker. So so <laughs> <laughs> so give us a sense of uh, Luke Bossard because he's he's a, a key player in making this transaction happen. I don't want to give away the plot, but tell us a little bit about Luke. So Luke. Uh, Bassard, uh, Jim, uh, and you, you know people like him even better than I do, but uh, Luke Bassard, I had in my later career, I interacted with a lot of private bankers in Geneva and elsewhere. And he's the classic private banker. He, he's not evil. He's smooth. He's a charmer. Mm -hmm. And his focus is on his client, and his client is the CEO of Iran Parnather. And uh, he feels that, look, uh, I don't want this young exec executive to question anything because my bank has already gone through the know your customer rules, et cetera, with now there's the boss. And my job is really to get the account open for Iran Par. And I want them to take this young guy to, to lunch and then get him out of, my, out of the way. <laughs> yes. And so, and of course, the inter and so he's very smooth, very charming, uh, but you know he he says the right things, uh, and he's he's basically as I said his loyalties are to his client, and he's also governed by and by Swiss banking rules and Swiss secrecy rules. Yes. So here he had the interactions in the novel with Ayan, where he's Ayan's trying to push the edges of all of that, the relationship with Nader as well as the secrecy. Uh, they form some of the tension in the novel too, Jim. They do. In fact, as we draw to a close here, I just want to tell my listeners that the this group of very richly drawn characters and the intrigue and the backdrop of those themes that we talked about early on, 1970s terrorism, expat life, collapse of the Pahlavi regime, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, all of these rich and intricate scheming characters, some of them, all play a, a major part against the backdrop of those important 1970 themes. And Madhav, where can my listeners get a copy of Labyrinth of the Wind? So if you go to my website, Jim, madhavmisra.com, that's M-A-D-H-A-V-M-I-S-R-A.com, you'll have links to all the places. And it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the major book sites and e-book uh, reader download sites. Mm -hmm. And Madhav, could you also tell my listeners about the reading that you're going to do in Boston 
on February 27th. Uh, yes, so that's going to be via a Zoom, uh, a Zoom webinar on the 27th of this month at 1 p.m. Pacific uh, at the Brookline Booksmith, which is one of the old established bookstores in the Harvard area. So I do hope as many of your listeners can, can sign in and join me on that. So listeners, if, uh, if you will, February 27th, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Brookline Booksmith Shop in Boston will host a virtual book signing and book discussion by Madhav. Please tune in on Zoom to participate in that virtual book signing. At this point, I'd like to thank my guest, Madhav. Madhav, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jim. And encourage all of my listeners to get a copy of Labyrinth of the Wind. It's a debut novel, which I think you'll really enjoy. We certainly have in our home here, and I commend it to your attention. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting from America's favorite city, San Francisco. <laughs>